after I did that summer program at MIT, I ended up applying there for undergrad and uh, going there because once I got accepted there, I was like, all right, this will be the way. And when I joined, I was undecided about if I wanted to do mechanical engineering or computer science, but I kind of knew that I would do one or the other. Yeah. And one of the things I realized once I got there is that all of the math that I had learned in high school from my school that didn't really teach STEM very sophisticatedly was <laughs> when I got to MIT and they were like, okay, now you have to combine physics with calculus. Those aren't separate concepts anymore. And at that point, I got really confused by what everything that was going on in physics was. And I was like, okay, I'm really bad at all of this applied engineering stuff. I think I should <laughs> stick to software programming where everything is cleaner and outcomes are either true or false, not many decimal points. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so then I pursued that path for the rest of college. It's good to learn about yourself. That's what college is for. You're like, I'm a binary kind of person. Don't give me all these long tail solutions. I like it when it's clean. <laughs> Avalara Next is a free online event for developers looking to build tax compliance into their systems to navigate increasing regulatory complexity. Join them March 30th to learn about Avalara's vision and to connect with their developer community. Register at avalaranext.com. Welcome everyone to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm really, really super excited for today's episode. I'm one of your co-hosts, Yara Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. I'm also joined by two of my other co-hosts who I'm going to allow to introduce themselves as well. Hey everybody, I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm also joined today by my colleague, Matt. Hi, Matt. Hello everyone. My name is Matt. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. And I'm going to pass on the torch to Danielle to introduce herself. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Danielle. I'm a director of engineering at Apollo, where uh, we help people build graph APIs. Yeah. So if you can't tell, me and Danielle share the same workplace. We are employed by the same company. So that's why I'm super excited to have this conversation today. As always, we love to have interesting people on the podcast to talk about the work that they do, how they got into the work that they do, all that kind of good stuff. So we want to do the same thing with you and Danielle. And I would like to kind of hear... What your background before Apollo was like, what got you to Apollo? What was, what got you interested in tech and software engineering in the first place? All that kind of good stuff. Well, I grew up in the Bay Area. So I grew up kind of surrounded by Silicon Valley and people in the programming profession. And uh, my stepdad is a software developer. Um, and so he was always kind of encouraging me to pursue those kinds of interests but my high school was very small, and we didn't really have computer science classes or anything. So when I was in high school, I just took the standard math classes and standard science classes. And there was one summer, kind of the summer before 12th grade, where a lot of colleges will offer programs for rising seniors in high school to try out things that maybe they hadn't been exposed to in their high school programs. And so I applied to this program at MIT called the Women's Technology Program, and it's for high schoolers. And you go out to Boston for a summer, and they teach you how to program in a month, and you try to make a little Tetris game by the end in Python, and I'd never had an opportunity to do that. And so I kind of applied, and I got accepted, and that was a really 
exciting moment for me because that was the first time I even got introduced to any of these concepts. The program that I did, it was a combination of electrical engineering skills and then computer science skills. And so they teach you like how to make a circuit, how to make a little radio. But my favorite part of the program was the visual side of things and the the programming side. Um, they teach you how to make a little program using Python where you try to kind of animate a character across a page. Oh, and cool. the yeah, the assignment was like, make a little car. It's okay if your car is just a rectangle and just drive it across <laughs> the screen. And that's the assignment. And I got so carried away that I think I like drove a car and I had a cow and I had a UFO and like the UFO beamed up <laughs> the cow and I made it very, very complicated. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I think I really am having fun with this. I actually genuinely enjoying it. Um, took it a little farther than I was supposed to. Cool. Yeah, where does your career trajectory lead you after that? Yeah, well, so after I did that summer program at MIT, I ended up applying there for undergrad and uh, going there because once I got accepted there, I was like, all right, this will be the way. And when I joined, I was undecided about if I wanted to do mechanical engineering or computer science, but I kind of knew that I would do one or the other. Yeah. And one of the things I realized once I got there is that all of the math that I had learned in high school from my school that didn't really teach STEM very sophisticatedly was <laughs> well, I got to MIT and they were like, okay, now you have to combine physics with calculus. Those aren't separate concepts anymore. And at that point, I got really confused by what everything that was going on in physics was. And I was like, okay, I'm really bad at all of this applied engineering stuff. I think I should <laughs> stick to software programming where everything is cleaner and outcomes are either true or false not many decimal points <laughs> and uh, so yeah so then I pursued that path for the rest of college it's good to learn about yourself as a colleges for you're like I'm a binary kind of person <laughs> don't give me all these <laughs> long tail solutions I like it when it's clean <laughs> yeah 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 that makes sense I, I think I enjoyed algebra and calculus in school but I think I'm I'm similar to you. I, I enjoy more of the like straightforward, wrong, right. That's it. You know, cool, cool, cool. So then after you take us to what happened after you graduate from MIT and you're, you're sure. done with your CS major degree and all that great stuff. Well, to be honest, that's, that's Apollo. So ah, I did yeah, some internships awesome. and then uh, the sun, before, at this time when I was in college, Apollo was not doing what it's doing now. It was a company called Meteor. And Meteor is a full-stack JavaScript framework that is very popular to use for hackathons because it helps you just get up really quick with a running app. And so I'd been introduced to Meteor in college um, for class projects and hackathons. And I just had it in my mind that if I could work with those folks who built at the time, one of the top 10 starred GitHub projects. It was one of the first GitHub projects to surpass a thousand stars or something like that, or maybe it's 10,000, but there was some milestone they were very proud of. I just thought that if I could join these folks and work with them in any capacity, that that would be a good place to start my career. So graduated and I joined. That's an interesting way to evaluate it. I was talking to a venture capitalist the other day who's moved from investing in traditional companies to investing in like the blockchain crypto space, trying to you know be on the bleeding edge. And he was saying, 
that's what they look to as sort of like a leading signal is like developer activity. So yeah, go on GitHub, see which projects are attracting the most attention from people who are building stuff. Maybe that's a good, you know, good place to invest. Totally. Was there any other company that you were looking at as a potential or were you kind of like 100% committed to doing the Apollo rope? It's kind of funny. When I graduated from high school and went to college, I was like, oh, I'll go to MIT. And I, I got in, so I didn't really look for other places. And it was similar with Apollo. I had ah. done an internship and I really, I had done an internship at GoDaddy and I really enjoyed my time with them and they had a really wonderful intern program. And so I was kind of thinking, I'll go back to them, but why don't I just give my resume to Meteor that one last time and see if they actually look at me this year, whereas every other year they had ignored me and it kind of <laughs> worked out. And then it was hard to choose, but I came yeah. here and I'm very, very happy that I did. So you started out with an internship and just stayed since then yeah i started as a full-time but junior developer on things at meteor but then because i was the brand new person and they were just starting to look into graphql and start this graphql project that they were calling apollo they said hey you're brand new you don't have any context on this meteor stuff why don't you go work on apollo stuff so i've been working on apollo oriented things for as long as we've been doing them but yeah since before the company was apollo that's super interesting so like do you think at the time they were still trying to test the value proposition there they were like this is the new thing maybe we'll do this you're the new person you try it out like you know kick the tires see if this is worth investing in definitely there's a whole backstory to why meteor started looking at graphql and how that became apollo that tell us we could go into yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so Meteor is a full stack framework. It was opinionated. Our founder started it back in 2012. And the landscape of how we do web development, obviously, has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And so at the time, they made this uh, kind of relationship between Mongo and Node a very important part of the framework. So in order to make a Meteor app, you're tied to using Mongo as your database. I think that that's very successful for people that are starting Greenfield because Mm. Meteor handles all of the real-time aspects of data transfer between Mongo and, and Node and then your web browser, which is why people loved it so much. But if you wanna actually have that kind of Meteor development experience, using any other database that's not MongoDB, you just couldn't use Meteor and you couldn't do it. Like Meteor handles all of the challenges and complexities of WebSockets and subscriptions for you. And that's why people love it so much, but you could only do that if you were using MongoDB. And so within the company, they started looking at ways that they could maybe integrate with other databases, maybe like a query language that they could put in front of their layer with Mongo so that you could use that query language and connect to other databases. And around the same time, Facebook open sourced their specification for GraphQL. And I think the folks at the company at the time saw that and thought, wow, this looks a lot like what we're doing internally, trying to design this new data layer for Meteor. And so initially the Apollo project just started as well, let's build tools to help make GraphQL as successful as possible and to help establish GraphQL as being something that's here to stay because that would be the best outcome for Meteor because then we <laughs> can use GraphQL for Meteor. Yeah. Uh, and then I think, you know, over time, I'm sure it happened pretty quickly from 
where the founders were sitting, but I was just a junior developer at the time. So over time, it became more and more clear at the company that there was this opportunity with GraphQL that probably had a much, much higher ceiling than any opportunity we could ever have with Meteor. And so eventually kind of the investment in Apollo grew and then the whole company got pivoted to Apollo. Yeah, I think this illustrates the the beauty of being in a startup, right? Things change so quickly. And like, honestly, when you're that early on, it's very easy to pivot the whole company, the whole business model into a totally different direction. So I want to hear, like, what was your experience like helping build Apollo from like day one? at a startup, like you're a new developer early on in your career. You're also at a new company that's like early on. What was that like? What were some of the learnings and challenges that you confronted along that journey? I think in the early days, because we're talking about 2016, 2017, the battle was really to catch up to Facebook and catch up with our open source to what Facebook had open sourced as their client and server for GraphQL. So the early days focus was really on we want to be players in the GraphQL space and we want to make GraphQL as easy to use as possible. And so I wasn't in a leadership role yet in the company and I was kind of just along for the ride as a developer at that point. But I remember We hosted the very first GraphQL Summit conference in 2016. Mm. It had maybe 300 people attend total. And I remember the goal of the conference from our perspective was to prove to people that GraphQL was a serious technology. We wanted to bring these leaders from the early GraphQL adopters together, like Shopify and GitHub were the big names at that conference. And show other companies that, hey, this this technology is really serious. You can trust that it will be here to stay. You can make bets on it and invest in it. And that was really the only point. <laughs> well, it just took a while for people to use GraphQL serious enough for us to have an opinion on what kind of product we should make at Apollo. So yeah, I mean, we can get there later as we talk about it. But at the time, we just wanted GraphQL to be successful. Right. So let me sort of interject for a second here. I'll ask the most basic question as the lay programmer, and then I'll let Matt and Ciara sort of follow up after you answer me. Yeah, for somebody who has a, you know, a rough understanding of how software development works, um, but isn't, you know, in the space themselves or writing code every day, how would you explain, you know, what GraphQL does, and then sort of like what the layer Apollo GraphQL does? Ooh. (laughs) So let's see. You can assume I know what an API is, I guess. Let's I, was, I, okay. I, I, I got that much. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know what an API is. API is a way that a client and a server decide to communicate with each other so they can pass data and both mutually understand it. And the most prevalent specification for doing that, specification is like the language that these two entities decide to speak to each other. The most prevalent specification for doing that for the last 20 years on the web has been the REST API specification. And with REST, the idea with that is that you kind of have, it's it's almost like if you go to McDonald's and you're like, I want, I want meal number one. You have predefined meals, you get whatever is predefined, and there's not a lot of flexibility, but you know exactly what you're going to order. That worked really well for a long time because... The internet has, it's evolved a lot in the last 20 years and especially in the last 10 years with the complexity to which we want to talk 
to people with data. And so 20 years ago when the specification first came out with REST, it was very appropriate for the way people were using the internet back then. But over time, uh, we've become more sophisticated with how we want to use our data on the internet. We now have more clients. You have your web client, your iOS client, your Android client, your Roku, your Apple Watch. They all want access to the same fundamental pieces of data, but they need it at different levels of granularity, different speed levels, different performance levels. And so the REST specification where you have kind of these predefined menus and you can't change what you're asking for created a lot of challenge for more sophisticated client use cases because really all of these clients, they want slightly different things. They don't want to have to order from the predefined menu. They want to be able to order a la carte and tell you what they need. I just have to finish this culinary metaphor now because it's too good. And then I I swear I'll let Matt and Sierra in. But if McDonald's is the REST API, then Chipotle, Mm -hmm. where I get to pick and choose, is more like the next turn of the wheel. GraphQL. GraphQL. Okay, great. I've exactly. got it now. You got it. I, I was thinking I was just going to absolutely butcher a McDonald's burger and be like, you know what? I want a <laughs> fish fillet as well as a Big Mac patty. Exactly. And then the uh, Apollo graph is an extension beyond that. So if if you are in a place where you can define your data to be queried more flexibly, like the Chipotle way of querying, then you need to have a really well-defined a la carte menu so that people know what's available. And that's something that you define called your GraphQL schema. So the Apollo graph is all about you treating that GraphQL schema as a core piece of your product. It's not like your product is just what you're showing your end users through an interface. Your product is the data. And you give it that level of care so that people can use it in ways that maybe you didn't even yet anticipate. And you can enable that kind of use case. Avalara Next is a free online event for developers looking to build tax compliance into their systems to navigate increasing regulatory complexity. Join them March 30th to learn about Avalara's vision and to connect with their developer community. Register at avaleranext.com. I am curious, just so from my understanding, I've never used GraphQL before, but I'm curious as to where you would kind of define Apollo and its its responsibility starting and ending, and then how that integrates with GraphQL. Like what is Apollo, what is the value add that Apollo is giving Mm -hmm. GraphQL that makes it its own kind of entity as opposed to just GraphQL, the open source? So GraphQL is a specification. It's when we were talking about APIs, it's it's the language that the client and the server agree to use to talk to each other. That's all that it is in and of itself. It is that language definition. And so in order to use it as a developer, you need tools to interpret a language. You need like a translator or you need It's almost like you need to be taught that language, like you need to learn a language to start speaking it on both the client side and the server side. And so one of the things Apollo does is build those developer tools so that people can speak GraphQL, but also use frameworks that they're very used to, like React 
or Node or, for example, there's a there's an entire community of tools that people have used to help you speak GraphQL if you're using Python or Ruby. There's just like a whole boatload of these things. So one of the things we do is build the tools to help speak GraphQL. And then another thing we do is build tools to help people understand how their GraphQL is being spoken. Like show you, um, we can show you analytics on who's using your API and what they're talking about. And that turns out to help you if you're trying to evolve your graph and scale it. You explain that so well. I'm like going to have to re-listen to it. <laughs> yeah. I have to always explain to people, especially like as a developer advocate, and then even like with family, they're like, where do you work? And having to explain what GraphQL is and what Apollo does is like, I think I overcomplicate it. So I'm going to like still, I'm going to like verbatim still everything <laughs> that you just said whenever I like talk to people from now on. Very, very right. cool. I love it. And I was, as as you were saying your metaphor about the drive-thru, I was thinking about like a poorly put together API nobody likes. It's like the menu at the drive-thru where you keep saying what you want and they can't understand, like it's garbled somehow <laughs> the other end totally. and then you get a bag and it doesn't have your the right food in it. So I guess, you know, one of the things that I'm also really curious about, um, aside from the technology, if Matt and you are okay with moving on, uh, is the, yeah, evolution of your career internally. You said you started as an intern. Did you then move up the food chain as an IC before moving over now to what you're doing more as a director and a, and a manager? Yeah, exactly. Started on the IC path. And when I joined Apollo, we were about 20 people. So we had two engineering teams, one that we called the open source team and the other that we called the cloud services team. And I was on the cloud services team. And as the company grew and pivoted, pivots are always really hard for companies. There were challenges with that in a few ways. And there there was a person on my team who was my manager who ended up leaving. And so it created a management opportunity. And I, up to this point, I had been writing React code for a front end for our product, which is now Apollo Studio. But I'd also been interested in filling gaps, wearing hats like you would mm. at any 20 person startup. So one of the things that I had done is gotten myself involved in recruiting very early on. And especially with recruiting interns, I was very interested in that having just come out of college. And it was really confusing to our candidates what was up with our company, because we had these two things, both Meteor and Apollo. And so I had just kind of out of the blue made an entire recruiting website on my own. I did it with our head of recruiting, and I had it in my mind that he would write most of the content and I would build the website. But the reality was I built the website and then I was like, all right, so I need these like seven pages of content. And he was like, here, I wrote you the content. And he sent me like three paragraphs about culture. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's perfect. So I put his three paragraphs on the culture page, but then I had to write these other pages myself to fill up this website. And it was a bit funny for me because I was such a junior person and I was like, nobody else is going to do this. So I'll take a first pass and then I'll bring it to our founders and I'll be like, do you like what I wrote about your company? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> to these candidates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I guess they did because honestly, they didn't ask for any updates. That was our recruiting website for a couple of years. And mm. I think because I'd done that, I kind of became visible to the founders. They mm. saw maybe some 
maybe some leadership qualities in me. And so they gave me that role when there was a, a new manager opening. They invited me to try it out. And so I've been doing that ever since. Cool. I, I want to know, um, it seems to me like you transitioned to a leadership role pretty early on in your career. What was that transition like? Like what were some of the the challenges, the good things that happen or unexpected things that happen? And like, even if you have some tips for someone who's listening, who's like, I see now and wants to transition into manager roles, what what tips would you give them? That's a lot in one, but like, feel free to answer any of those. Totally. Well, there have been a lot of challenges, uh, but it's also a job that I really enjoy. And mm. honestly, the environment in which I'm managing now is the best it's ever been for me at Apollo. I'm really loving it. And so I feel like I've learned a lot in the last, I guess, five years of doing this. When I first got the role, it was exciting to have that responsibility. I felt very responsible to all the people, but I had no idea how to do the job and I basically didn't have any mentorship. Didn't really have much career experience up to this point. And I've been working for my co-founder directly for a long time now, and he's been learning the ropes of how to do his job just as much as I was trying to learn the ropes of how to do mine. Yeah, I made a lot of early mistakes, for sure. I, I think with management, though, there's everything that you can read in a book, everything that you can prepare yourself for, and then real challenges that you just have to live to understand mm. them and to know how to do that kind of thing in the future. And I had plenty of that early on. I feel like I really got a big dose of it in, in good and bad ways. So, yeah, I draw on that experience all the time. Can you talk to any of those good or bad experiences? Give like a learning opportunity that you had and then something that really made you think, this is why I went into management. If you can share those details. I think I fell into management, honestly. I'm, I'm very glad that I'm here. But I don't think I, as an IC, thought, oh, wow, I really want to be a leader and therefore I should go into <laughs> management. Yeah. It was more at the time, I was like, what is this tech career? I don't know. Maybe I should be interested in management. That seems like a thing that people do. Um, so that's kind of how I, I got started. The I think the way in which I really felt, oh, wow, this is why I do it has it's come a lot later because I think I had to understand the job and feel successful in the job to feel the reward of the job. So what I've accomplished up to this point, I have 20 people that work for me in my group. I've been able to groom multiple managers at our company. I've been able to hire probably like 30 people into our company, control our company's culture, at least in the realm that I work in. All of that to me is like, this is why I do it. I'm actually really proud of that. It means yeah, a lot to me. You should be. And yeah, that's seeing people grow in their own careers. It's like so cliche, but seeing people <laughs> grow in their own careers and being able to get that for them, being able to show them that they can progress, that they can lead that project or get that promotion because I've helped them. That's really rewarding for me. Well, some of the early challenges were just around the team that I inherited. Um, the company was pivoting, and so there was a lot of challenge because we were so deeply ingrained in what we were doing with Meteor. And yeah. in the end, we gave that all away, and we sold that to another company so that we could focus on Apollo. And so the time that I stepped into the role didn't have a ton of mentorship, and then there was a lot of 
dis, I guess, disorganization, disarray from mm. the yeah. pivot. I think one of the things that you, you said, which really sort of, yeah, like stands out to me along with the idea of, you know, like managing through change, which, you know, can be very difficult and is unique to each company, I guess, um, is that, you know, you've read books and, you know, you've uh, talked to other people, but maybe had mentorship or didn't, but until you experience certain things, you know, like you can't, you have to learn from the experience of doing them. One thing I always wonder about with people who go from an IC to manager role and then have a, a large team of folks working under them, I don't know if they're developers or engineers, is like, do you ever feel that you have to work sort of on the side alongside your job to maintain your technical chops and to like know, you know, what the changes are that are important so that if you're in a role of managing people who are writing the code, they re- they have a certain like, level of respect for you or the decisions that you're making? Interesting. I, yes, I think, yes, I don't feel like that's a pressure, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think I am a programmer and I just love that so much that mm. I like to continue to dip my fingers into all of those pies. I like to have side projects. And because I know the code so well at Apollo, I do even like to contribute. Uh, I don't have a lot of free time in a predicted kind of way, but around the holiday period, for example, a lot of my team was on vacation already. And so I found myself thinking, hey, I've been wanting this thing for a while. Why don't I just open a PR and send it off to somebody? So I do still get a lot of joy out of doing those things, but uh, the breadth to which I manage folks is much greater than my own technical expertise, and that's I'm super okay with that. That's not really a problem for me as far as managing the team goes. I don't feel like I need to be the most assertive technical voice in the room. I have a lot of opinion on front-end code and kind of the intersection between product and UX design and front-end engineering. But I manage infrastructure engineers, data folks, and they are their own experts. And they tell me what they think I should be doing. And I trust them. And I try to hire people where I can trust them in that way. And it's a really good relationship. And one of the things I had to learn doing this job because I am in a role where I manage very senior folks while I'm still relatively early in my own career. So I had to learn how to be a partner to really senior folks so that we could have mutual trust and there wasn't some sort of weird power hierarchy between our level of experience and our level of age, I guess, and what we could accomplish together. Very cool. I I love that. Um, That's something I think about a lot too as a developer advocate, since I'm not strictly technical, I'm always like, am I going to lose all my coding skills? But I think (laughs) I agree with you. Over time, I realized that like, while they're important, there are other skills that are also equally important that I have as well. Um, One thing I wanted to talk about too was um, in the little blurb that you sent us about yourself, you said, I care much more about the people I'm working with than the day-to-day specifics of my job. I want to hear how that kind of shapes you as a manager and like how you work with the people you manage. I wrote that. I think that's a core part of my ethos. So yeah, I don't really approach my job as saying, oh, a director of engineering does things like make key replatforming decisions and I'm that's what I do and I'm not willing to do other things or you know I don't I don't approach it with such strict lines drawn uh, I see I see the job as being a gradient and glue and coming from the size when the company is so small I think part of being 
glue for a team is wearing a bunch of hats, even if you don't really know how to wear them. So in that way, I'm not really that bothered one way or the other about what I'm doing day to day. But something that I really care about for the culture of the team that I've built and that I work with is that we enjoy each other's company and that it's it's actually joyful to come to work. Um, I think work is can sometimes be stressful, it can sometimes be toxic, but if things are going well, what I would like to achieve is work where a work culture where things are actually safe and people love coming to work. You like logging in on Mondays not to do the job but to see the people. And if you have complicated things going on in your home life or your personal life, work can be a haven from that or things are normal and structured and there's work to get done and you can do it and you can get that dopamine hit from shipping and you can feel good about that and then you can go back to dealing with whatever else is going on in your life. My goal is to achieve that and for when we have it to maintain it and for when we don't have it to get there and that's what I mean by I care more about the people. Very cool. I wish every director and manager was like that. (laughs) We were just chatting a bit, I think, about the ISC to manager transition, and you spoke very eloquently about some of the reasons that you do it, the experience and the ethos you're bringing. To take it back to the technical for a second, can you just tell folks over the last year or so, what are some of the things that have happened at Apollo GraphQL that you're proud of or you think were significant to developers who might work with your tools? And then from there, let's let's look out You know, over the next year. I know you can't show us the roadmap, but what are some things people might be getting excited about and things you might be working on that you think will be significant? Yeah. Well, from my group, uh, the teams in my group, we build Apollo Client, Apollo Server, Apollo Client Web, iOS, Android, and then also some of the free and more ubiquitous developer tools in SaaS. And so there are, there are always big wins. Apollo Client 3 was a big win. Apollo Server 3 was a big win. On the SaaS side, something that we're very proud of is we built this thing called the Apollo Sandbox, which is a little developer environment that you can come to to write GraphQL queries and it's continuing to evolve and blossom and it was very fun to build and we're very excited about where it's going. So it's a lot of interesting technical stuff that's gone into that, um, especially that we're very excited about. For the coming year, Apollo's big focus is on Apollo Federation. And the idea with that is we want everybody to be able to model their data as a graph because we could read our marketing website. There are lots of reasons why. Um, and in order to do that, inevitably, companies have their data in lots of different places. Bigger companies have lots of teams, lots of microservices. People in different parts of the company need to be able to independently own their portion of the graph. So it's actually very hard to scale a big data graph as one monograph. And what we want to support is for people to be able to make their data in much smaller subgraph sizes and then federate all those together. And so we've created a technology. We call it Apollo Federation. It helps you make one gigantic graph out of lots of smaller subgraphs. And most of what you'll see from the company over the next year, I think, is the evolution and continuing maturity of Federation. Awesome. Exciting stuff. It's funny that hearing you say that because it's like that's a lot of what my role has been focusing on over the past few months. So it's like so weird to see both of my worlds collide like this. But thank you so much. (laughs) You made this happen, Sarah. um, You did this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much for for taking the time to tell us about yourself, your career, your managing style, 
um, what's going on at Apollo, what your journey there has been like. Super appreciate it, even for me as someone who's fairly new at the company. Loved listening to all your answers. I'm going to close out the episode now. We're going to wrap up with a lifeboat, which is an answer score of 20 or more to a question score of negative three or less, excuse me, that goes on to receive a score of three or more. So this badge was awarded to someone named Torek. And the question is, why doesn't get natively support UTF-16? Okay. So with that, we're going to close out. I have been Sierra Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. You can find me on Twitter. I spend a lot of time there. My username there is Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. My name is Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with comments or questions for the show. And if you enjoyed our programming, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. And I've been Matt Kianander. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter or YouTube at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. And I'll pass off to Danielle to finish off the show. Thank you all so much for having me. This is my very first podcast. So thanks for going easy on me. My name is uh, Danielle Mann. You can find me at Twitter, Danny Mann with two M's, D-A-N-I-M-M-A-N. Awesome. Thanks so much. See you all next time. Bye.